0: God, thanks for this uh, this scripture now um, that we get to be in together in community. Um, we confess, God, we come at different points in our journey, um, each of us. Uh, God, I pray on the journey of faith, but you're revealing what it looks like to live by faith uh, very individually, and, and yet we come collectively, God, to learn as a community what it looks like to to walk in community and walk as a community, and so with that intention, God shape us. We pray by Your Spirit through this Word, and we pray in Christ's name, Amen. Well, last week uh, we explored the distortion of God's wrath or God's anger. If you're with us, um, which was I introduced to us by anybody remembers the famous atheist author Richard Dawkins. We're going to actually introduce this theme this week: the church that the church has been a source of injustice and um, and violence with another famous atheist author, uh, Christopher Hitchens, who once said, actually in the title of his book, religion poisons everything. And Hitchens will argue in that work, if you've ever read it, that Christianity has has long been this agent of disempowerment in the world, both of the poor as well as of the marginalized, of women, various minority groups. It's been an enemy of these groups for years, for millennia. And thus, he says, the beliefs of Christianity are not credible, and we shouldn't believe them. That's the argument. And to illustrate what Hitchens is articulating, if you haven't read the book, because it's pretty tense, intense, I mean, um, we need to look no further than uh, the comedian John Oliver. So he has a a show called Last Week Tonight. I won't make you raise your hands if you watch that, but I do. And uh, in 2015, he had this episode, which is now the second most watched episode of Last Week Tonight, 27.5 million views. I won't tell you what the first... Most watched episode is. I'll let you find out what that is yourself. But he says this in that episode at the beginning of it Churches are the cornerstone of American life. There are roughly 350,000 congregations in the United States, and many of them do great work feeding the hungry, clothing the poor. And then he continued. But this is not a story about them. This is a story about churches who exploit people's faith for monetary gain. And then he went on to, for about 20 minutes, to describe how these televangelist churches that he's talking about in this episode prey on the poor and the isolated and the lonely and how this has become a huge scourge on Christianity. It was probably one of the easiest episodes for him to make, I think, because the contrast between these luxurious lifestyles of these so-called televangelists and the poverty of the desperate people that they manipulate is is, uh, overwhelming. So one famously convinced his congregation to buy him a $65 million Learjet, uh, which he called a preaching machine. Another is shown telling his audience members to take on credit card debt if they can't afford to donate so that he could buy not one but two jets. Another tells his audience members that, uh, that barely have anything left in their bank accounts to give away and just trust God for the blessing, a concept called seed faith, which is the promise that donating a little bit of money to a TV church will result in God's blessing with a lot more money and, and perhaps healing you, as one woman named Bonnie Parker did in this, this story. She foregone, she went, she uh, foregoed, foregone, forewent, forewent, awkward, why? English, come on, come up with one word. Forewent treatment for a terminal illness uh, she was facing because she believed that by giving to this church, she would be healed. Um, This is terminal cancer, by the way, and that the greater her giving, the more she gave, based on the psychology, the greater her healing would be. And so she gave and she gave and she gave sacrificially and ended up dying of cancer, poor and in debt. Um, and so while televangelism didn't exist in James's or Jesus' day, as you can hear from this reading we heard, uh, the issue of neglecting the poor certainly did. James highlights the fact that this was not a new problem for American churches. This, exists, this exists, existed as long as the churches existed. And So today, because this distortion is a real problem, uh, with uh, for the church. I mean, we're not doing television, televangelism here. I hope you know that if you're visiting. <laughs> I'm not asking you to give, give, give because of that. But we need to figure out what does God teach? What does scripture teach about this problem? And what's God's solution to the problem? So James 2, which I think offers some keys to understanding what, why, and how we might address the issue, issue of injustice in God's heart for justice. Okay? And, it's, and by the way, it's not just about televangelist preachers. There's lots of issues you could layer on top of this. And so, but here through that lens a little bit, and we'll talk about kind of what, why, and how. What we're called to be, why we're called to be this way, and then how we can become what we're called to be, okay? That's how we'll kind of approach this. So first, what kind of community we're called to be? And you find the answer, actually, at the end of the reading we had today in verses 12 and 13, James just says, be a community of justice and mercy. Or you might just say just mercy, as Brian Stevenson titled his book a few years back, Just Mercy. Um, Micah 6.8 famously declares it this way. He's shown you, God has shown you, O oh mortal, what's good? What does the Lord require of you? And you all know this, or many of you have memorized this, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, interestingly, Micah 6.8 is actually the theme verse of my son's school this year. He's going to a school in northeast Seattle here, a Catholic school. And we've been having conversations around what this verse means. I'm sure you guys have with your kids. And one of the things we've, uh, we go to the same school. <laughs> one of the things we've talked about is that Micah 6.8 is really a nice summary of how God wants us to live our lives. Just a really nice, neat summary. In other words, in to, to walk humbly with God is to know him intimately. Like to be, if you can think of walking with a friend or a spouse or family member, to be attentive to what God loves and God desires in, in, in God's heart. It's the essence of of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to walk with God, right? What I love about Micah 6.8 and the beautiful thing of it is that Micah then describes what a humble walk with God would look like, which is to do justice and love mercy, which can seem at first glance like very two different, very different things, but they're not. They're actually the same or synonymous. So the Hebrew term for mercy, which I talked about a couple weeks ago, is the term hesed, which appears about 250 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it's the word for God's unconditional grace and God's compassion. It's just what the word means, okay? The word for justice is mishpat, which also occurs more than 200 times in the Old Testament. So two really big ideas. And its most basic meaning is to treat people with equity, to treat people equitably. So you have compassion and grace and equity. And so in the ecology of Micah 6.8, mishpat puts the emphasis on the action, whereas I'd say hesed puts it on the attitude or the motive behind the action. So do you see how they're kind of related to each other? To walk intimately with God, we must do justice out of merciful love, if that makes sense. That's what Micah is saying or envisions for us. And what's more, as you read Scripture and you, and, you, and you kind of look up places where justice and mercy show up, this calling is specifically intended to be extended to uh, what some have called the quartet of the vulnerable. So these are the, in, the, in the Old Testament, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants or aliens, as the Old Testament calls them, and the poor. There's the quartet of the vulnerable. And that was because in these pre-modern agrarian societies like the ones of the Bible, these four groups had no social power. Uh, they lived at very subsistence levels and were just days away, moments away from starvation. So if there's a famine, an invasion, social unrest of any sort, they could die of, of starvation. So they're incredibly vulnerable and, then, and, and thus easily trampled on by people in power and also just within typical systems that we might navigate easily because we have social connections or an education, our own personal wealth. And so God calls his people to extend just mercy toward these groups and provide care and protection and for the most vulnerable of society. That's what God's church, the kingdom people of God, are supposed to do. And of course, in terms of today's world, that quartet would need to be expanded a bit. You have the refugee, the migrant worker, the unhoused, the mentally ill, And many vulnerable other groups in our communities, like the elderly, people with disabilities and mental illness, many single parents, um, and various minority groups, ethnic minorities, sexual minorities, um, different kinds of minorities. All these people are vulnerable in some way, shape, or form. And so God calls his church just to set aside your doctrine, which you hold very dearly, and your politics and your prejudice. just, Just set it aside and just begin walking humbly with God. Just start doing that and intimately with God so close to God that, that you'll begin to indiscriminately, as James 2 says, extend just mercy to these kinds of people, no matter who they are. That's our calling. Now, if you want to get a picture of how that might look before we move on to the second point here, kind of what would just mercy look like within a community like ours, you actually don't need to go much further than Acts chapter 6. Go there sometime, I'll tell you a little bit about it. A lot of people read this story in Acts 6, don't realize it's really about Just mercy, doing justice, loving mercy. So, Acts six describes how there's these two different cultural groups within the early church in Jerusalem. Um, There's these Hellenistic Jews, who are Greek-speaking Jews, and then there's um, the Hebrew-speaking Jews. So, like I said, Hellenistic Jews spoke Greek; they they thought in Greek, they understood Greek. Their heart language, as we say, was Greek. Vice versa for the Hebrew-speaking Jews; they thought in Hebrew, they were raised in Jewish homes. That was their heart. That culture was their heart language, so to speak. So inside the church, you had this sort of grading upon each other between these two groups. And you can imagine this: they spoke different languages, they had different festivals, different music they preferred, different foods that they ate. All that stuff was different. And this grading upon each other was particularly noticeable in Acts six around this this custom called the daily distribution. If you know the story, you're familiar with this. This was a thing that was common uh, for early Christ followers. Uh, within the church, they, they gave money like we did, and out of that fund, uh, they, they gave to people who didn 't have an income, and they were supported by those, especially the widows of the time we 'd call that our benevolence fund, our deacon fund here. So Act six tells the Greek speaking tells us that the Greek speaking Jews were complaining in this early church that their widows were not receiving the same amount as the Hebrew speaking widows. they were being shortchanged. they, weren't, they were being uh, disempowered a little bit. So, what do the apostles do? They're the leaders of this early church. This is Peter and James, the author of the letter of reading, and John, all the guys, you know. It tells us in Acts 6 that they appointed a whole new class of deacons, leaders, to oversee the daily distribution, which is always a good strategy. Get new leaders if you have a problem <laughs> and appoint new leaders. Uh, but what's interesting, and what you can't tell if you're reading this story in English necessarily is that every one of the new leaders that they appointed had Greek names. They all had Greek names. Do you see where this is going? And so here's what that means for the apostles and what they were trying to do. They certainly knew this wasn't kind of an overt, subversive thing. Like, let's get together and let's disempower these these Greek-speaking widows. Let's do that intentionally. That's, That's not typically how things happen in churches. That's not been my experience. Maybe that was happening. I don't know. But I think here's what's happening. This is how it happens usually. There are these underlying perceptions, researchers call this hidden or implicit bias today, which are these subconscious beliefs and attitudes found to be associated with language, ethnicity, certain behaviors and customs and ways of expressing belief. And the key is, as you read uh, studies on implicit bias, what it shows is that implicit bias always leads to what? Discrimination. Every time. And so the marginalizing of one group, often a minority group, Within a larger majority group. We see it all the time, even within our community. I'm just gonna say that. And so this is what we see happening in Acts chapter 6. The Greek speaking widows are not receiving the same portion of the daily distribution as the Hebrew speaking ones, likely because of an unconscious, subconscious bias about their beliefs and their views and things like that. So, you know what the apostles do? They appoint a group of Greek-speaking leaders to oversee this distribution to ensure that the bias ended. They empowered a disempowered group. And they said, we must take pains to make sure everyone's treated equally in our church, that our bias doesn't poison the well of God's grace. We don't let that bias poison the well of God's grace. And here's the key for us as we move to the second point. It took ingenuity by them, creativity, courage. Uh, steps like that take time, uh, energy. It's risky to do that. I'm sure that some of them were not popular with some of their other leaders that were disempowered. So not everybody's going to like it. That expression and extended, extension of just mercy, though that rolls off the tongue so nice, uh, that's often hard to do within a community. And so that's what we're called to do. <laughs> and there's a lot more I want to say about that, but because I built three points in this morning, we're going to move on. Um, But the reason, actually, other than just being expedient that we need to move on, you'll notice I said what and then why. See, uh, James, even though he can seem like a pragmatist, like, just do this, like, I'm a big shot apostle, we did it, you do it, right? Um, He can seem that way, but he's actually offering a very practical way to live, just mercy, (laughs) out of uh, informed theological truth. He actually, he never says just do this because I do. Or because I said so. He instead gives you some theological reasons, really crunchy, profound motivations, that become uh, the, the motivations to be a community of justice and mercy. So we need to consider those, which is why. Why would we ever want to do kind of what they did in Acts 6? Why would? I mean, that's hard and risky. Why would we ever want to do that? And so here's why. Look at verse 1. Uh, My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, Don't show favoritism. There's your why right there. In fact, you know, that's a great thesis statement. I'm glad you started with it. That's the key to understanding this calling right there. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. And the the key is actually right there in the name he gave to Jesus, the glorious Lord Jesus. So in the Greek, actually, it's called an apexegetic genitive. How about that for a mouthful right there? (laughs) That's your big word for the day, Nate. Apexegetic genitive uh, the word glory actually comes before in the New Testament Greek before or after Jesus. I'm sorry. It's actually saying Jesus is the Lord of glory, and because of that, don't show favor favoritism. Uh, glory is acting as sort of an independent title that qualifies Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of glory, and that's important because the Lord of glory was actually a common Old Testament title given to God in the Old Testament. And now it's being transferred onto Jesus by James. He's the only person that does this in the entire New Testament. Um, He transfers the Lord of glory onto Jesus. And and it actually, that's important because glory not only signifies God's presence, but also God's significance. It's a word that means weight, so God's significance. So, for example, Peter uses this word glory in Luke 9 to describe the transfiguration of Jesus. They're on this mountaintop, Jesus is transfigured, which is a significant moment of God's presence in in Peter's life. So he says, glory. (laughs) a Glorious moment. But the key is there, it's not brightness. Peter's not talking about the luminescence of Jesus. Like, Jesus is now glowing. He's talking about the significance of God's presence in that moment. Do you see the difference? Uh, So the glorious is the important and the significant. And so to say that Jesus is the Lord of glory is to say that what he wants in your relationship with him is supremely important. The most important thing in your life is what he wants in your relationship with him. Remember, we're talking about walking with God humbly. What he wants in your relationship with him is supremely important. If you want one reason to spend time with God alone in the morning, that's it right there. What he wants in your relationship with him is supremely important, so you need to be hearing that. His presence in your life and in our community is supremely significant. And you see, James, he's connecting that idea with the rest of the chapter, okay? He's saying that if you understand the glory of Jesus, his presence and significance, the significance of his presence in your life, if you listen for that, you're going to begin to apply the faith of Jesus, the ethics of Jesus, the life of Jesus into your life of faith and ethics and community, all the things. You will become a community of radical justice, and, and profound mercy. You'll become that because that's what Jesus was like. His glory changes the way in which you understand yourself and your community and the way you treat others. And so I hear someone saying, well, how's that? How does the belief in the glory of Jesus lead to a life of mercy? And that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. So um, it's actually in James 3 that he gives us the entirety of this theological argument. Remember, I'm laying out his theological argument, the why. So in James 3, 9, he says this famous thing. With the tongue, we praise the Lord, our Father. With our words, with the tongue, we also curse those who have been made in the image of God. And there, James is hearkening back to Genesis 1 and 2 because Genesis says that every human being, no matter who they are, are made in the image and glory of God. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. And because of that, Genesis 9 says don't murder. That's where the murder commandment enters into Scripture. And that's after Cain and Abel. But don't do that. And why? Why not murder? We think that's just kind of common sense. Don't murder. Duh. No. Genesis, says you shouldn't murder people because they're made in the image of God. They're precious. They're infinitely valuable. They have God's glory in them, God's significance, God's presence. And so even if that doesn't seem evident to you, that's why you, when you take a life, you're actually diminishing the presence of God on earth. That's why. Don't do that. What's more, because I don't think any of us would argue against that, right? <laughs> like murder's good. James then says, it's not just because every human being is made the image of God you shouldn't murder. He says you shouldn't even insult anybody. That's what he says. That's what a curse with the tongue means. It's an insult. Because you insult someone. Back to James 2 now. If you treat a poor man as if he's somehow less important than you, go sit over there, please. Like, go sit on the balcony because you don't look like you fit. Stand out in the foyer. That's an insult to that person's humanity, Right? And if you deprive a widow, Acts 6, of benevolence that would would care for her and shelter her, that's an insult as well. Um, So what you're failing to understand there is the point of failure is is in recognizing that that woman, that man, are image bearers. They bear the image and the, the character of God. They're human beings made in God's image and likeness. They carry God's glory in their skin and their bones, their soul, their body. The presence of God is significance. Remember this? No matter how old how young, no matter how weak, how strong, how rich, how poor, whatever racial group, ethnic group you're in, every human being is an image bearer and bears infinite worth. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. got this profoundly. And uh, he he, uh, gave a speech once called The American Dream, where he said this, The concept of the imago dei, the image of God, is the idea that all men, women, and children have something within them that is God-injected. I love that view. And that gives everyone a uniqueness, a worth, and it gives them dignity. And thus, we must never forget this as a nation. Uh, Remember, he's a political theologian. (laughs) There are no gradations in the image of God. And then he says this, I love this. Every man, woman, and child, from a treble white to a bass black, is significant on God's keyboard. I wish we had a keyboard up here, Silas, like Pentecostal keyboard, right? (laughs) Precisely because every man, woman, and child is made in the image of God. You see what he's doing? He's saying, he's not saying, actually, well, the reason you need to respect the rights of every person is because it's just common sense. It's in the Constitution. It's a democratic value or ideal. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, everybody just knows it. Just do it. No. He does theology. He says, here's the reason we do that. It's because human beings are made in the image of God. He's inviting us to do public theology, to bear our theology out on our practices as a nation. a nation. And that's instructive to us as a church because it reminds us that even though we're a church, we need to do theology too. <laughs> like, we need to especially enter into relationships with people different than us. Um, this is not about common sense or common good or tolerance or whatever. This is about God's people doing deep reflection on who we are and how God's made us and then responding to that and with an understanding that within our community within our practices, in our outreach, in our worship, in our families, in our daily work, we, we are bearing witness to the image of God and we're connecting in with that. Christ is the Lord of glory. He's present. He's significant, he's significant. And that's our involvement in and engaging with the world around us makes a huge difference. How we do that. That's the kind of deep theological reflection. If we'll do it, if we'll just do that, that'll reshape all those spaces and moments I named. It'll reshape our worship on Sundays. It'll reshape your workplaces on Mondays. And the ethics that you bring to bear there, it'll reshape the way you interact with the poor and the marginalized in our city, right here in Lake City. It will or should reshape our politics and our families. It'll reshape everything. We confess that God entered the world in Jesus Christ and because of this, all reality is being transformed. We're free to be the kind of community that uniquely participates in that transformation. We're not just doing church. We're participating in the transformation of the world. Are you, are you with me? That's why we do this, okay? Let's move on. That's the what and the why. Here's the how, and then we'll respond together, okay? Here's how we can be this kind of community where justice and mercy meet and are expressed because of the presence of God's glory. It's actually in verse 2 and then verse 25, which we didn't read. It's interesting that James begins and ends chapter 2 with these sort of stories or illustrations of the question. How do you become a, just, a community of justice and mercy where those meet? And these two unique stories actually, I think, illustrate this. In verse 2, we learn, as we read, that there's this church in town that a rich man's come into uh, and given a privileged seat, probably right up front. Not that, sorry, I just pointed right at you. Like a privileged seat, there's nobody sitting right (laughs) now. And this poor man, perhaps an unknown visitor, is asked to stand in the back. And we can picture that. Right? We saw it happen in the 60s with Rosa Parks and lunch counters. It happens today. We see that. And then, verse 25, which we didn't read, James offers another illustration, which can seem unconnected, but listen to this. Um, it's the story of the prostitute Rahab, who in the book of Joshua famously gave lodging to a group of spies who were gathering intelligence about the future promised land. Okay? Set aside conquest, set aside all that, set aside your images of what you think Rahab's about. Here's what these two illustrations have in common. They both teach us how to become a community of just mercy. So here's what they teach us whether that's creating a welcoming space where every person is welcome to be a part of this, no matter who they are, what they bring, what they don't bring, or a protective space I mean shelter, refuge, that's what Rahab's providing. Um, both examples illustrate that for us to be a community of justice that loves mercy, what all we really need to or where we can begin. Not all we need to do, there's so much more to this than I have time for. But where we can begin is simply by offering space, creating space. Do you see that? Create space in your gatherings. Create space in your homes for people that are unlike you. And watch God show up. It's about space. Um, Lauren Winter, she tells a story that I've told here before, I think tells a story that profoundly illustrates this. Um, She was a professor at the University of Virginia, which you know much about UVA, very prominent, conservative, evangelical school. And she was an author and a scholar there, and then she went through a very public divorce um, and was sort of excommunicated from that community. You you just don't get divorced in the evangelical world. And uh, so she left the church. And then she wrote this amazing book called Still, and the subtitle is Notes on a Mid-Faith Crisis. And she's, she's dealing with this experience, and she's kind of processing, what does this mean for me to be a scholar and an evangelical and a woman in this community now? How do I live a life of faith, or should I just give up? So she writes about leaving church and then coming back to church one Sunday after quite a while away, and then sneaking in the back, and then finding a spot in the very end of the last pew, or we'd say row, right on the edge, so she could leave the service that she says in the middle. And of course, as you can expect, on this particular Sunday she's writing about, that didn't happen. Uh, First, she writes that this lonely woman, who she presumed to be in her 40s and presumed also to be recently divorced also, sat down to her right in the pew. And this disheveled man with like an untucked shirt, spotted something that looked like mustard on his left ear, sorry, his ear, sat down right in front of her. So you can kind of see this now. And I'll just read what she wrote. And then... (coughs) As if this wasn't enough, another woman sidled up to me, mumbling something that Winter took to be, is there space here? Remember, we're talking about space. And here's Winter. I scrunch my legs in so she can squeeze past me into the still mostly empty middle of the pew. But she doesn't move. She just keeps standing expectantly to my left, and I, as I come to realize that she wants to sit right where I'm sitting, she wants the same spot at the end of the pew by the aisle, maybe because she wants to leave in the middle too. Or this is where she sits every week. What choice do I have? I move over. I'm now sandwiched between this thin woman in the white dress, who I presume is recently divorced, and this new woman who looks frankly like she's seen better days. She has a suitcase with her. She keeps a hat on and sunglasses as well through the entire service. Uh, She smells like rotten apples and the streets. She never once opens the prayer book, this is an Anglican church, never joins in responsive reading or a hymn, but she seems to know a lot of people. She stands and sits and kneels at the appropriate moment. She seems oddly and entirely comfortable. And then in the middle of the sermon, the rotten apple woman begins to tap her right index finger rapidly on her knee. It's the tapping of a crazy person, one of the people from whom Jesus would have cast a demon. There isn't even a rhythm to the tapping. It makes the whole pew shake, tap, 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 tap. And so I glare at the woman. And hoping she'll just stop, but she doesn't. And then unaccountably, my left hand shoots out. I close my fingers over her hand, squeezing her fingers together to stop like a parent would to a child. And though I'm horrified now at what I've done, she doesn't seem the least offended or confounded or surprised. She hasn't even shrugged my hand off or let go. In fact, she seems to be holding my hand now. And we hold hands. Here's the punchline for the rest of the service. And that is part of what I mean when I say life inside, we're talking about space, inside the Christian story has begun to tell me who I really am. Do you see it? It's about space. It's creating space in your life for people, trouble whites, base blacks, poor widows, elated new mothers, young people, old people. It's about space for us all to discover who we really are. So here's the question I want to leave you with this morning. How can you create space in your life? Let's start there. Start at your home. Just start where you live. Uh, Let's not even think about these empty chairs yet. You know, we're starting a second service in a couple weeks. That's a little bit about space, just creating some extra space. But start at home. How could you create space in your home? Who is it in your community or your life that is this woman that's just looking for a relationship, a little time to be with somebody else? Maybe from, hear from God. here a reminder that she's loved. See, God is present. And because God is present, moments like this are significant. And, uh, and God is present and significant in the most, unsurri- or most surprising and predictable ways in people and situations. And so might we just be people of space? No matter what, where, and how, God chooses to show up. And then let God do the rest. Are you with me? Let's take a moment to pray. I'll invite our worship team back up. God, we begin by confessing that we've, though we've never been like a televangelist church here, we've been complicit. We haven't been people who've honored your image in our community, steward that well. Maybe because we are afraid, God, of what that might look like or do to us, change us. We might be ignorant (laughs) and just not even know, God, that sort of implicit bias. We may not even know our blind spots. We confess that to you, God. And we thank you that James, through your inspiration of your word, lays out a, a roadmap for us on just how to repent of that just by simply creating some space in our lives for people who bear your image, often people who are different than us, but in whom there is no less of your image, and in whom, because your image is present, there is significance in our interactions with them. So God, would your spirit now teach us how to be people of space, graceful space. Teach us as a church, teach us as Christ followers. We pray in God's name. Amen.